Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Adam Grant today. He is a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meeting and live more generous and creative lives. He's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers and Fortune's 40 Under 40. He's the author of three New York Times bestselling books, Give and Take, Originals, and his most recent Option B with Sheryl Sandberg. Adam is the host of Work Life, a TED original podcast. His TED Talks on original thinkers and givers and takers has been viewed by more than 12 million people. Amazing. Just awesome. But I just want to say that I have enjoyed his work for years, and it's just an honor and a pleasure to have you today, Adam. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Tiffany. It's, I can promise you it's all downhill from here. Well, listen, you know, it, we started on a high, so I've got <laughs> high hopes for the remainder of our time together, for sure. <laughs> well, what I like to do is start this out on something I called, uh, I call bullish and bearish, nothing too painful for our, you know, regular listeners. They, they've become to really enjoy it. Uh, so hopefully you will as well. There, you know, nothing too painful, but we're going to just loosen things up with these three first questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Uh, we'll start off with uh, one uh, bullish or bearish on getting rid of titles bullish. for employees? Definitely bullish. Bullish. Good. Good. I figured you'd say that. Uh, the next one is corporate valuations will soon have a do good, quote unquote, component to them. Bullish because they already do. Excellent. Hopefully they'll, it'll happen more. Hopefully it'll happen more. And the third one, this was a little fun. Uh, a robot will be able to do magic tricks. Ooh, oh, there's a big conflict between what I want to believe and what I believe. All right. I'm going to have to say bullish. All right. Well, you know, for people that are listening, wondering why am I asking magic trick questions? I think it's a fun way to get started. So tell, tell everybody who's listening who may not know this about you. Uh, why the magic question? <laughs> I used to perform as a magician. Awesome. Now a Wharton professor, one of the, you know, one of the best in the business and, and, you know, used to be a magician. It's like me. I used to be a carny. So we all have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> My <laughs> wife doesn't agree. She likes to remind me that magicians are at the very bottom of the hierarchy of entertainers, only above mimes. Oh, I, I, I disagree. <laughs> I do too. Okay, good. Well, we'll have her on next time. We'll do bullish and bearish on that one on her. <laughs> Well, let me, let me start just sort of walking through your work because there's so much and we just don't have enough time to get through all of it. But, you know, I, I, would, I would say that give and take has an interesting construct for people who haven't read it. I think if you could give kind of those three broad uh, styles of sort of interpersonal dealings, you know, if you could give kind of the high level of what, what got you to give and take and, and really what the takeaway was. Sure. So I was struck that when we talk about success, we normally talk about individual forces. So we think a lot about hard work, talent, and luck. But there wasn't a good framework to really understand the interpersonal interactions that influence our success. And I was struck by the fact that if you look at evidence from around the world and many, many industries, there are three styles of interaction that come up again and again. And I came to call them giving, taking, and matching. So it's about the expectations and goals you have when you interact with another person. And givers are people who, by default, are always asking, what can I do for you? Takers are the opposite. It's all about what can you do for me? And most people aren't all the way on one extreme or the other. 
The majority of people say, look, I don't want to be too selfish or too generous, so I'm going to adopt this third style called matching, which is about being fair and following the law of reciprocity. So I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Well, I'm going to guess that there is a lot of gray between those because I was just thinking, you know, that's kind of individual to individual. Like if you have a relationship with one person, would, would it be the same in a team? Would there be people who play different roles within a team as well? There, there often are. So one of the things you can do is you could think about a team culture and say, okay, what's the, what are the norms around here? Or what are the typical behavior patterns? And, and what are the values or principles that we live by? And you can find that it's not just the, the sum of the individual styles. So putting a bunch of givers on a team does not guarantee a culture of givers. Although putting a few takers on a team dramatically increases the odds that you wind up with a taking culture. But I think one of the, the more interesting things in the data is that takers actually do more harm than givers do good. Uh, if you look at the, you know, it's just the, the effect of even letting one taker into a team, you'll see that paranoia starts to spread and the givers become afraid to help. And the flip is not always true, where if you bring one giver in a team, you don't get an explosion of generosity. Right. More often it's like, oh, great, that person can do all our work. And so I like to think about, you know, as you think about hiring and team building, it's actually more important to screen out takers than it is to bring in givers. And if you do that well, you're left with a mix of givers and matchers, which is, I think, the optimal composition for team effectiveness. Well, is there is there ever a time where because I think people will say, well, you know, just giving doesn't always work either. Right. I mean, if you're just if you're just a giver, <laughs> you know, then you feel like, you know, you're not getting anything back. Is there a is there a difference between a giver who does it, you know, too much versus does it in the spirit of, you know, I want to participate and give? There is. Yeah. So I found that the givers tend to go to both extremes when you measure their success, uh, looking at engineers, productivity, salespeople's revenue, medical students, grades. Givers were over overrepresented among the worst performers, but also among the best performers. And that was true even after I controlled for their intelligence and their skill levels. And so it seemed to be the, the, the choices you make, the strategies you choose for, for how you help and when you help and who you help matter a lot. And so there are a lot of givers who end up burning out or just getting burned by takers because they help indiscriminately, right? No, no matter who's asking, they say yes. They're willing to drop everything whenever somebody needs help. And they help in all sorts of random ways that mean they're doing other people's jobs instead of their own. And what I found successful givers do is they set boundaries. And they say, look, I'm going to be more thoughtful about my helping decisions so that I'm not sacrificing myself. And that meant I'm going to be you know, a little bit less generous if somebody has a history or reputation of being, of being a taker. And, you know, I'm going to reserve my, my kindness mostly for fellow givers and matchers. I'm going to try to help in ways where I can add unique value and that align with the organization's goals so that I'm having a real impact as opposed to just getting stretched thin in many directions that aren't productive. And then I'm also going to block time to get my own work done so that, you know, the time I spend helping others doesn't come at the expense of my own performance. And when givers set those kinds of boundaries, they end up succeeding themselves as well as elevating the success of others. Well, so it, can you have kind of multiple personalities? And I say that with, you know, a smile on my face, you know, where you're kind of a, uh, you know, maybe a giver at home and a matcher at work, you know, can you float between those personality styles or is it really just innate in someone's personality? Oh, no, you can't, you can't flex at all. It's completely fixed, totally set in stone, hardwired by your DNA. No, of course not. I, I think the, the interesting thing is that 
I think about your style as falling right in the middle between, you know, a, a personality trait and a set of choices you make in every single interaction. So if we were to look at the interaction level, right, we all have moments of giving, taking, and matching. And in fact, over the course of a day, you might have one interaction where you feel like a taker when you're negotiating your salary, and then another interaction where you're matching if you're interacting with a colleague outside your organization and they want you to share some knowledge, you'll say, look, you know, I want you to reciprocate, quid pro quo here. And then you might be a giver when you're mentoring a junior colleague. And that, that happens to all of us. But I think where the style comes from is when you look at your default and say, okay, I have a preference, right? I have a value system around how I treat most of the people most of the time. And that can vary to your question from home to work. There, I think the most, the most common pattern in the data that I've gathered is that people are givers at home and matchers at work. And they say, look, you know, with my family and my friends, I help with no strings attached whenever I can. But, you know, I, there, there are takers out there at work, right? I don't know if I can afford that. And so I'm going to play it safe and protect myself by matching. Well, so, so I guess moving, you know, based on the situation, uh, you're not necessarily changing your personality, but you are being aware of, you know, the, the interpersonal interaction you're about to have, who you're having it with, right? And then adjusting accordingly, if you will. Yeah, I think that's critical. I mean, one of the one of the hallmarks of a failed giver is being someone who believes that you have to be a giver in every role and every relationship. That's a recipe for disaster. At the same time, though, matchers often end up shooting themselves in the foot because they end up being too transactional. And when they help, it feels like they didn't really care about you. They were just doing something for you so they could get a favor back. And so they don't end up building the the social capital. The re- they don't get the relationship and reputation benefits that, that givers normally get. And the other thing that happens to matchers is they miss out on learning opportunities because they only help where they think they can, mm. they can get something in return. They don't end up you know, exploring things that don't seem personally productive, but actually end up stretching their knowledge or their skills. And that is one of the advantages that accumulates if you're a giver. All the time you spend solving other people's problems actually enhances your ability to solve the organization's problems. Well, so I guess you know, to net that out, giving isn't a zero-sum game. It's not. And I think that you know, if, if you believe that success is a zero-sum game, that is a hell of a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> so that, that was a great opportunity for me to sort of inject kind of the next book that you did, because I think moving from give and take to originals there had to be something that happened that made you go, hold on, I haven't said everything yet that I need to say about this. It, what, was the, what was the chasm or what was the transition for you to get from one to the next? Oh, that's interesting. Well, it actually came from being typecast. So I, I published Give and Take. There was this, there was this big New York Times uh, magazine cover story called Is Giving the Secret to Getting Ahead that, that helped bring my work outside the ivory tower. And I kept getting stereotyped as the nice guys finish first person. <laughs> and I hated it. I hated it. I hated well, so it. It was horrible. Because it's the magician who's the nice guy. Okay, got it. It's all coming together. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that was not at all my message. First of all, you know, I said, look, givers are, you know, they, they finish last just as often as they finish first. And that was kind of the, the core evidence that motivated the whole book. And secondly, being a giver is not about being nice. And people kept misunderstanding that. I said, look, helping others is not the same as pleasing them, right? Being nice is about being agreeable and polite and saying yes all the time. Whereas giving is about contributing where you think you can add value. 
And in fact, one of the ways that people often give is by being extremely disagreeable, by giving negative feedback, by challenging the status quo, by pointing out problems, right? Those are helpful acts, but they definitely don't feel nice. And so I, I, what I really wanted to, to capture was how you can be a more effective, uh, what I've come to call disagreeable <laughs> giver, where you know, you're, you're gruff and tough on the surface, but underneath you have other people's best interests at heart. And I think that those are the most undervalued people in our workplaces because they are the ones who are constantly challenging us to, to improve our work and you know, not just letting us get away with, uh, with the ideas that so, we're comfortable with. So for the listeners, so, when someone says, you just never like anything, you say, no, 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 I'm just a disagreeable giver. <laughs> there you go. That's it. it. Done. But you know, I think as, as I started to study those kinds of behaviors, I was struck that that this spoke to a broader question about how we can champion new ideas and how we can tear down old ones that we don't think make sense anymore. And I think it's, you know, it's really frustrating that there's so many original thinkers out there who have great creative ideas, but they run into walls when other people don't see the potential in them, when, you know, they don't know how to champion them effectively. And so I really wrote originals to try to figure out as an individual, if you have an idea, how do you get it heard and implemented? But then also, if you're building an organization as, as a leader or a manager, how do you fight groupthink and make sure that people are constantly bringing new ideas to the table? Yeah, and I'd tell you, I had Lisa Bodell on and we got into this sort of diversity of thinking styles and she really pulled forward that kind of groupthink and it was really illuminating to me because I said, I can't remember you know, where I sat at a table with a client you know, and you're in a room with people who've worked for, together for a really long time and you ask a question and they go, oh, you know, Joe's not here, but I know what he would say. <laughs> oh, no. And you're then like, wait, if oh, that's boy. true, you don't need Joe anymore, right? That, that's right, right? <laughs> you you but should I just be Joe. I never thought of it that way until this kind of diversity of thought. So I get asked a lot to talk on diversity and inclusion, and I try to broaden it because it's, you know, it's more than male and female. It's sort of introverts and extroverts and, you know, people that are givers and takers and makers. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's diversity across the board. Um and I think groupthink around innovation is really dangerous. It is. There are tremendous pressures in most workplaces against cognitive and emotional diversity, right? So, you know, one of the, the things that I worry about the most is when I hear people say, well, you know, we're, we're all about culture fit around here. If you look at the data on culture fit, first of all, what are people really looking for when they say they want culture fit? They're looking for similarity. Are you just like all the other people around here? which is a great way to weed out diversity of thought and essentially start cloning what you already have represented. And then secondly, if you track startups over a decade and a half, the ones that privilege culture fit in the way they hire and promote are actually, after they go public, they end up growing at significantly slower rates. And that seems to be because of the groupthink that they foster. So if you, if you really want to challenge people to think differently and innovate, you want to adopt, I think, more of a framework like IDEO has, has developed where, you know, long after they designed the mouse for Apple, they started to notice that they were relatively limited in their thinking styles. They, they had designers. And they kept getting called in to do these weird projects like, can you reimagine a shopping cart in a grocery store? Or, you know, can you, can you make Sesame Street more educational and entertaining? And they realized that designers didn't always know how to even just where to start and figure out what the problems were there. And so they said, we needed a whole new job title. And they created a job title called Anthropologist. And they started hiring these anthropologists. And pretty soon they were like, this is amazing. 
we should only hire anthropologists. And you're like, wait, that's the same trap you fell in before. And every time they get excited about a background, it means it's time to diversify again. And the, the principle I took away from that comes from Diego Rodriguez there. Diego said, look, it's not about cultural fit. It's about cultural contribution. When you hire someone, when you promote someone, instead of asking, do they match the culture? You want to ask what's missing from the culture and how will this person enrich it? Yeah, and I think there's a couple things. So just in the example you gave about the shopping cart, does it really need to be redesigned, right? And I think there's this you know, big wave of everyone's trying to you know, disrupt and innovate and compete against these, you know, uh, disruptors in their industry, or, you know, how do we quote unquote, Uberize our business or Airbnb our business, or, you know, we work our business, you know, and, and, and there is so much more. So I think how to spot a good idea is, you know, not every idea is a good idea. So a new shopping cart, I know you just use that as an example, but at the end of the day, like, is that even a good idea? <laughs> like, is there, is there enough value in going through that exercise? Would, would you say that how to spot the good idea um, and kind of build momentum around that idea and kind of getting the, um, you know, the group or alliances or coalitions to sort of work their way through it is, is the first step. Yeah, it is. I think that <laughs> idea selection is where most creativity goes to die. So I have a former student, Justin Berg, who, who studied this with circus artists. So think of Cirque du Soleil performance, uh, performances. And what, what Justin was doing was, was basically taking videos of brand new acts and having different groups rate them to try to predict which ones would take off. And he found that we're terrible at judging our own ideas. Uh, Tiffany, I know this has never happened to you, but, but many other people are like, this is my idea. How could it not be brilliant? And managers are almost as bad for the opposite reason. Instead of right. committing too many false positives, they commit too many false negatives. They're always looking for reasons to say no. And you know some of that is skewed incentives. Right. Managers know that if they bet on a bad idea, it's going to be embarrassing. Whereas if they reject a good idea, well, no and one I think will this ever goes know. back to, well, and so you know, they don't want to stick the their necks think, but this we've, you know, we're, we're successful right now. Why would we change it? Or which is bad, ter terrible, right? Success is the worst yeah, which, teacher. Terrible attitude. Um, the other one is we're in trouble, but the car is going around the track 75 miles an hour. We can't change the tire on the cars you know, as it's going around the track, or if we pull it in for a pit stop, we have 90 seconds to change it, right? And it needs to go back out again. Uh, and so what would you say to people who are yeah. listening that say, look, I think I have a good idea and, you know, getting over that kind of managing the fear and the doubt. And then how do I spot that good idea or build an alliance or coalition around it to sort of bubble it up? Well, if you want to get better feedback on your idea, one of the things that Justin found is you should go to your creative peers and they have some distance that you don't, so they can see the idea a little bit more clearly with a little more neutrality. But unlike your boss, they might be more motivated to bet on a weird idea or to see the potential in something unproven. And so they tend to be the best forecasters of which ideas take off. And then, you know, as you champion your idea, there are a few things that I think are, are probably critical. The first one is, I, I watch people make this mistake all the time. Uh, they think, okay, I, I really want to get other people excited about this idea. So I should highlight all the reasons why it's going to work. And that is a great way to motivate a skeptical audience to try to poke holes in it, right? What you actually want to do is say, look, here's why I'm enthusiastic about this idea. And here are a few reasons why I think it might be tricky. Or here are a few limitations that I've noticed. There's a great entrepreneur, Rufus Griscom, who did this. Uh, he started a company called Babel. And he actually went to pitch venture capitalists. And he said, here are the three reasons you should not invest in Babel. 
And he walked away with $3.1 million in funding that year. And then two years later, he went to sell his company and he included a slide in the pitch deck that said, here are the five reasons you should not, you should not buy Babbel. And it was acquired for $40 million. And I think what Rufus is doing there is he's signaling that he's a nonconformist. He's showing that he's credible, right? If, if he's willing to talk openly about the flaws in the company, you can believe him a little bit more when he, when he emphasizes the strengths of the company. And he's also making it harder for you to come up with your own objections because he's already covered those bases. And I think this is something we are all trained to do if, if you ever did debate, for example, right? You're supposed to identify the weaknesses in your argument and address counter arguments, but we forget to do it when we're pitching new ideas because we think they're fragile. And I think that no, not everyone should be Rufus, right? I'm not suggesting you should go to anyone and say, let me tell you why my idea is doomed. But I would recommend saying, you know, hey, I've, I've got this idea. Here's the upside. And here are a couple of problems I'd love to discuss and, you know, maybe get your insight about how to overcome them. Well, I think that that's fair. And, I, I, you know, and I think at the end of the day, um, ultimately, it's also transparency and honesty, right? I mean, if you walk up and go, it's so great. <laughs> everything's awesome. It's fantastic. This is the best thing. It also puts people on defense versus going a little bit more balanced, right? Like, look, you're already here to see me. So you may, you know, you already have this perception that you want to invest. So I've gotten you to the point that you believe I've got a good idea. Now I need to sit here and tell you, you know, why you shouldn't invest in me, right? Because, (laughs) you know, and and I think it's a psychological, you know, it's kind of the art of war. (laughs) Like, you know, you're going into a big negotiation, um, well, this has just been fantastic. I mean, I think the the last thing I'd ask you, uh, through everything you've just given us, because you know I could just keep talking to you for hours, and I'm sure our listeners would love it as well. Uh, but what's next for you? Um, I know that you did kind of option B with Sheryl Sandberg, and it, 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 and it, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. So I, I don't want people to think that I forgot about that. I just I just knew I wanted to pivot on these two first ones. But what's what's next for you, uh, Adam? What's next for you? And then what do you think's next for people who are that you know, on this give and take journey, they've read the book, or uh, they're on the you know originals. What what would you give them? So, I don't entirely know what's next for me. We're going to start planning season two of my work life podcast with Ted, and I'm super excited to dive into some really interesting workplaces and, and people's work lives. I think that you know too often we miss the opportunity to learn from other people who have mastered something that we'd really like to understand. So if you, if you wanted to, let's say, pick up a workout tip, you might go to an Olympic athlete knowing that that person has spent years trying to figure out how to perfect you know, a particular skill or master fitness, uh, even if you're not an Olympian. I think about improving our work lives the same way, that we want to go to people and places that live on the extreme and that have really pushed the boundaries of what's possible. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into that a little further. And I guess as far as uh, people who are working on, on maintaining you know, some degree of productive generosity or trying to champion original ideas, uh, I do a monthly newsletter called Granted, where I answer reader questions and share some of my favorite insights about work and psychology. And so I guess that's a, key, a decent way to stay up to date on, on the latest takeaways. Yeah, it's one of those newsletters. I you know I get so many that it is one that I actually read every month. So love it uh, for anybody who's looking for a dose of some some wise words. Uh, that's the one I would say uh, works for me. But with that, you know, I I just want to thank you so much, uh, Adam, for spending time with us on What's Next podcast. And I hope you enjoyed the time as much as I did. And I look forward to 
um, seeing whatever you do next and, and keeping in touch with you over time. And I, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I certainly did. Thank you for having me. So Tiffany, I really admire the, the evangelizing that you do. I think we need more people to stop and think about how they can make whatever part of their life they're trying to improve better. And it's, it's a delight to be a small part of that. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Uh, you know, I admire your work and, and always look to a handful of people for, you know, things I should be doing better and different. And, and you're one of them. So I appreciate you, Adam. Thank you. Well, I'll try to live up to that. <laughs> Thank you. What a special podcast. I thought that was great. Adam is, number one, such a great guy. But number two, just done some fantastic work around trying to help all of us just be better teammates, better individuals in our home and personal life with give and take, really thinking about how being a giver uh, or, or being somebody who is taking or being a, a matchmaker you know, at the at the end of the day, it's really what is our personality and where do we shine and how do we adjust those things every day to make sure we're bringing our best selves to work and home. But what I also liked was everything around being original. You know, I think that it explores how individuals can champion new ideas and really leaders have to worry about this group think and making sure people are allowed to to bring new ideas forward, whether they're the extrovert or the introvert. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it, it's just about adopting ways in which you can be successful. And I think that's a great message. So if you haven't read any of Adam's books, I highly recommend you go out and get them. Listen to his podcast, listen to his TED Talk. Uh, I think you will find him just as special as I did. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of What's Next. Please don't forget, subscribe, recommend it to your friends. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, leave uh, a review on iTunes. So just help a girl out. Either way, I appreciate you spending this half hour with me. I hope you've enjoyed it and I look forward to hearing from you. And I hope you will listen in again next week. Thanks and have a great day.